0: Good evening. How are you all doing today? Hey, so just a heads up, our screen behind us is like possessed or something. (laughs) So it's doing weird stuff, and if it just wigs out tonight, just pray, right? Pray over it. Uh, But just ignore it. We're going to shut it off if it gets too bad. But like if I see you guys like go glassy-eyed and just look past me, I'll know what's happening. All right? Well, welcome to all of you tonight here in our room and joining us online. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about how to catch flies. Yes, you heard that correct. How to catch flies. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have or have had toddlers in your lives? Yeah, a lot of you. Awesome. Yeah, I was reading online today uh, this uh, um, article, I guess it was what it was called. But somebody said, uh, toddlers have their own rules. And so they wrote this thing called property laws for toddlers. And here are the laws, property laws for toddlers. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. It can never appear to be yours in any way. If I am doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with something and put it it down, it then becomes mine. And if it's broken or uninteresting anymore, well, then it's yours. But the pieces are probably still mine, (laughs) all right? You know, those are fine rules for toddlers, but uh, not so much for mature believers in Jesus Christ, right? Uh, For followers of Jesus, you know, the word that we live by isn't mine and me, it's yours. Not me, but you. Not self, but others. And so I said uh, just a few minutes ago, we're going to be talking about catching flies. This came from uh, something that is attributed to Benjamin Franklin, written in 1744 in Poor Richard's Almanac. And he said this, and some of you probably heard this phrase, you'll catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. You guys ever heard that before? Right? I think it was last year at my house, we like had an invasion of the fly nation, right? And there were just those little gnats that get all over the place and... It was for weeks. We were just battling, and they're like everywhere, and we're like, what is going on, right? And then, I, gosh, after weeks or a month, some, some ridiculous amount of time, we found in the kitchen, stuffed behind something down in the corner, was, was a bag of fruit that had been given to me by a neighbor a month ago, and we just set it off to the side, and it was just gross and rotting and everything, and we're like, hey, that's where the Fly Nation's coming from, right? Right. Um, But in that process, we tried just about every internet thing you could think of to catch flies and get rid of them, right? Now, the point of Benjamin Franklin's, or at least a statement attributed to him, is that when you have a sweeter approach to things, you will find yourselves being more successful in your goals. Um, Definitely, if you're more sweet in your approach, you'll be more successful than if you're selfish, if you're mean, or if you're difficult. And so... Um, the reason I'm talking about catching flies tonight uh, is because this whole section of Peter we've been looking at over the last few weeks, uh, really that started in chapter 2, verse 11 and, and all the way up to where we're at tonight, has been dealing with a very important topic, how believers are to conduct themselves really on the stage of the world as the non-believing world is watching us and how we live and the decisions we make. And it could be, and I think it's very uh, very likely um, biblically, is that, that, that by the way we live our lives in all these areas that Peter has been touching on in this section, um, by the way we live, we might actually attract those who stand against God, those who hate him and hate what we stand for. And so the thought that Peter has been developing is continued here in chapter 3, verse 8. That's where we're going to be picking it up tonight. And really, Peter starts it there by saying, finally, and that's Peter's way to say, look, to sum up everything I've been discussing through this whole section, right? So again, you know, we've discussed three major areas previous to this in our social interaction as believers, right, Christians, saved Christians living in this world. We've talked about how to to conduct ourselves in society in relation to being good citizens and how we relate to the governments above us, even the bad ones. We've talked about conducting ourselves in the workplace and looking at the relationship to our employers or those who have authority over us, even the bad ones we looked at our relationship in the home as we looked at in the last couple studies husbands and wives and their relationships to one another even in difficult times but in all of that if you've been with us for the last you know handful of studies peter has used one word to summarize the general general calling the general role of all believers and that word is submission that is the word that has driven this whole piece and so Peter now is going to extend that concept of submission into a fourth area of social social interaction. And this fourth area of social social interaction is the church, is us as believers interacting with other believers. That is the fourth area of, of submission that he's getting into, you know, because as believers, yes, we live in a secular world, right, Yes, we find ourselves um, existing under secular governments, and, and we have jobs, and we have marriages, but we also have a family that is called the church. The family of Christ that all of us are a part of, and in that family, we are all brothers and sisters in the family of God. But the context that Peter's gonna be getting into is still the context of the unbelieving world watching the behavior. And it could be, that we could be so compelling in our witness that we would actually attract unbelievers to, to, to Christ by how we treat one another as Christians. And it's not just inside the church. It's not just how we interact with each other inside the church or at church events, but in the world, on social media, in our workplaces, because to be honest, most unbelievers are never going to set foot in the church. Some do. Some come. Right? We have, you know, the, the Easter and Christmas, right, the big days each year. We try and get our unsaved family to come to church with us, and in most cases they will. But, but in general, unbelievers aren't going to set foot in the church, so they're not going to have the opportunity to watch how the Christians engage with one another and how they treat one another. Where they see that is on the public stage, The stage of the world, and sadly, sometimes we find ourselves as Christians. Some Christians that find themselves acting one way in church, and acting completely different outside of the church, and it just damages the witness. It damages the witness of Christ. And so tonight we're going to look at three sweet things, things like honey that can attract the unbelievers around us. The first thing is going to be our general attitude of love. The second one will be our gentle response of blessing. And the third one will be our genuine motivation. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into it. Father, we thank you, God, for your word, and we just ask that you would speak to us tonight, that you would bless us tonight, that you would encourage us tonight, God. Lord, you've been so faithful through Peter as we've been studying to talk about how we're to act and conduct ourselves as believers in our society, um, as citizens, as employees, Uh, Lord, you spoke into the relationships of husbands and wives, Lord, and now you just speak to the general relationship of Christian to Christian God. And Lord, there are many in this world, many in this world, that would point to Christians and say, Christians are the reason I'm not a Christian. Because Lord, sometimes the witness that Christians leave behind is one of, of really being no different than the world in how they treat one another. And so, Lord, I just pray, God, you would speak to us tonight and encourage us, Lord. God, if we've been in a place where we're outside of the walls of the church or the Bible study, Lord, that we've been talking about, gossiping about, treating other Christians in a poor way, God, that we would be really convicted of that tonight, God, and called to change our behavior, Lord. Um, God, if we know people that, that, that are doing that, Lord, that you would give us opportunity to be that iron, that sharpening iron, and to speak into their lives, God about how that conduct really does damage the calling that we have as the church to be a light to this lost world. Um, So, Lord, just speak. We invite you to speak into our hearts, God, and to do your work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, he starts in verse 8, and he says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. So we're going to stop there. What we see in that first verse are five things that describe the general attitude of love that believers are to have. In general, but specifically towards one another, it's an attitude that I really do believe can can attract the unsaved because as they see how the church, the believers treat one another according to the word of God and in that godly way, I think you would all agree that it is becoming more and more radically different than how the world treats each other in the world. And so we stand out when we do what God is telling us to do. And so these five things here, you could sum it up if you're taking notes. It's love, right? <laughs> love one another, right? So, but let's let's dig into it. He goes, Finally, all of you be like-minded. That word, phrase like-minded there means to be united in the same mindset. United in the same mindset. So he's talking to us, the church, and he's going, look, be united in the same mindset. Now you might think about that and you go, is that even? possible, right? Cuz we all have our own mind, don't we? Some of us might define being like-minded as, well, yeah, when you agree with me, we're like-minded, right? That's not what he's talking about here. You know, when we just simply say as long as you agree with me, we're of like mind, that isn't being united in the same mindset. That that's just uniformity, right? If everybody thought exactly the same thing in the same way about everything, that's, that's just u- uniformity. That's just us being you know, carbon copies, and that's not what he's getting at here. He's not saying that every believer is to think exactly the same, right? I mean, it's obvious. We all have different opinions about things, um, pretty much just about everything, right? If we got into a conversation about politics, oh boy. If we got into a conversation about COVID mandates and vaccines, oh boy. If we got into a conversation about clothing styles, TV shows, movies, should Christians watch this or watch that, listen to that or listen to that, what music might be appropriate to play in church. I mean, there's <laughs> so many topics that if we, if we got into a conversation about it, in, in, in many cases, it would just end up as one huge disagreement, because we have different opinions about a lot of this type of stuff. And the reason is because we're different. We're each different. We don't agree on everything, and that is okay, You know, within the church, even today, you know, we we differ. We have different opinions when it comes down to theological issues. We have different opinions on the end times and how that's going to play out. We have different opinions on the rapture and when it's going to happen, right? You got people that are very pre-tribulation and mid-tribulation and post-tribulation rapture. You know, and, and, and the people will argue about all these things. People have different opinions about the millennium. Like, are we already in it? Did it already happen? Is it still in the future? There's all these different opinions on stuff. And, you know, it's okay for us to have different opinions on some of these issues. Some of these issues, right? Not all the issues because there are certain things that we are called to have a united mindset about. Truths, the core doctrines of our faith. But the peripheral stuff, we can disagree on. I have my opinion on when the tribulation's gonna happen, but I might be wrong. And if you disagree with me and you have a a different issue on when the tribulation's gonna happen, that doesn't affect our salvation in any way, shape, or form. We can disagree with that and still love one another, Right? The early church had its disagreements. You know, you read through Acts and stuff, you'll, you'll see that people had different ideas on, on whether you could eat meat, sacrifice to idols, right? And there's disagreements about it. They had to figure that out. Uh, keeping the Sabbath, right? Which day should we worship on? There was disagreements about that. Paul and Barnabas, they had an argument over John Mark. Um, the 12 apostles, I mean, gosh, they argued over who would be greatest in heaven, right? We have different ideas about stuff. The New Testament is full of disagreements between believers, but even though we're not called to think exactly the same, we are called to be like-minded. And so to kind of define that is is this is this is what I found one guy say about it. He goes, a like-minded here is cooperation in the midst of diversity. That's what I think he's talking about here. That in the midst of our, 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 our different ideas and opinions about things, that there are cooperation on the things that, that, that we can't differ on. There's cooperation in the, you know, I might disagree with you on how to put this event together, but we could still work together. That's the idea of being like-minded. I think the greatest example of this is the human body. And incidentally, it's an example that Paul the Apostle used to describe the body of Christ, Right? There's different members within the body. There's different parts that have different operations. You know, if if everybody was the hand, well, then we would never go anywhere because there's no feet. But if everybody were the feet, we'd go everywhere but get nothing done because there's no hands, right? I mean, that idea of that we're all different parts of one body. And although the hand might have a priority on something that is different than the foot, both of them should cooperate on the greater goal of doing the thing, whatever the thing is in that that context. They cooperate together in their diversity to achieve the higher goal, and that's really the very thing that Jesus prayed for, for his people. In John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21, this is what Jesus prayed. He said, I pray not only for these, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word, speaking of all of us to today, Christians. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now we don't have time to get into the doctrine of the Trinity, which I believe is a biblically taught thing, but you have God, one God, right? But there are differences between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But they're unified together as one God. There's a cooperation in the diversity there. And what it is that we are called as God's children to cooperate on or to be like-minded about, these are those things that we call essentials of our faith, right? Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. We're united in the same mindset on that. Should be. He came to this earth, took our place by dying on the cross. That's the gospel, He rose physically from the dead, and he's coming again. These are core issues. These are foundational issues to Christianity. If you you say, I'm going to have a different opinion on these core issues, you're not being like-minded. You're being not Christian in in any way, shape, or form, right? And and there's cults out there that have these radically different issues on these core doctrinal theological truths of Christianity, and and they try and call themselves Christians. Mormonism is, is one of the examples of that. Mormonism wants to be known, or at least used to, really push to be known as a Christian denomination. They wanted, we are Christians, we're just like Christians. But when you look at the foundational truths, no. We believe Jesus is God in the flesh, you believe Jesus is Satan's brother. That we can't, there's, there's no unity there, Right? And so these foundational core truths were united in the same mindset regarding these issues because they're the foundational doctrinal truths that that one must believe to be Christian, but then because they are the very thing that work towards the greater goal. What is the greater goal? Well, Jesus said it right there in that verse I just read, that the world may believe, that the world may believe in Jesus that he is the one God sent, that he is the source in, 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 in the very place we find salvation. But the details of how you and I might go about sharing the gospel, that can differ. Some people go tracks. Tracks are the only way to share the gospel. Other people go, nope, unless you're standing on a soapbox, it's not really evangelism. When I was in a hardcore band years ago, you know, we would go out and we would play our set and then we would sacrifice one of our songs in our set to preach the gospel in these clubs that we were at. And we had people tell I had people tell me that that's not evangelism. Why? Because you don't like the music? <laughs> are you kidding me? We can differ on those things, but we are to have a like mind on the very essential things. Then he says sympathetic. That word sympathetic means to feel the same thing. So he starts with, look, be like-minded, right? Be united in the mindset. Be united in those core truths. And then he goes on to say, and and, and feel the same things. But what he's really getting at is feel each other's hurts. Feel each other's hurts. In other words, don't be callous, uncaring towards your Christian brothers and sisters. We are called biblically to share each other's joys and to share each others each other's sorrows. Romans 12:15 put it this way, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And if you don't like that one, then we got 1 Corinthians 12:26. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is being sympathetic, right? Then he says, love one another. That's literally to to have love for each other like siblings. Makes sense, right? Because we're all brothers and sisters in the family of God. Now, some of you may go, well, you didn't know my sibling growing up, right? Little love, no love, right? It was just, it it was brutal. You know, me and my brother growing up, nobody would call us friends, right? I'd lock him outside and... He would get mad and grab the the dog chain and come swing it at me. I mean, we were, we were, it was battle, right? Battle. But now, man, there was just such great love for one another, right? We had a season of difficulty there. But the idea is, is to have this, this, this Philadelphia love, this brotherly love, this familial sibling love, that they are family. I love them as family. You know, and Jesus even pointed out, he said, this is proof that you're saved, right? You remember in John 13:35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then when he says, by this everyone will know, who is everyone? Well, in Peter's context, it's the unbelieving world that is watching that is seeing those two Christian co-workers at their job and how they talk about each other and how they treat one another and how they support one another. And, and you know, those Christians they see in their, you know, whatever, their gaming groups or their, you know, basketball teams or whatever, wherever they're, they're, they're observing. But we could put it this way. If you can't even love your family member in Christ who is united together to you through the same sacrifice, the same blood of Christ. How are you ever going to have love for unbelievers who hate you and hate your God and hate who you, what you stand for and everything you believe in? Because we are called, as Jesus is, 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 is example for us, to have that heart, that, that care, that compassion for the lost and dying world and we should care about their condition we should care about the fact that they're going to hell and we and we should care so much about it that we will then go what how am i behaving towards my christian brothers and sisters is it is it sending the wrong message to them he says and be compassionate that word compassionate means tender hearted now this is a really fun greek word because literally what the greek word means is to have healthy bowels right? Did, did Pastor Nathan just tell us being regular is an evangelistic tool, right? Is that what he just said? Um, kind of, but let me explain. In ancient times, um, it was believed that, that the deepest, most intense emotions were felt down in your intestinal region, right? In ancient times, it was really believed that. So that idea of, of being tenderhearted, like having this deep compassion for somebody, this idea was that you would feel it in your gut. And so if your gut felt good, you know, if your gut had a good feeling, then, then this, that's what he's talking about. Have healthy bells, Have good bowels, right? Um, the idea, you know, today we, we, we feel things like I have a gut feeling that, that's come from this type of thinking, um, you know, and so basically the idea is this. This is how I interpret this. Treat one another in a way that doesn't make you sick to your stomach, right? At the end of the day, when you look back on how you treated your Christian brothers and sisters today, are you like, oh gosh, I'm sick to my, oh, it makes me want to throw up. Well, then you did something wrong, okay? Um, in action, it's basically the idea of being deeply concerned for others, you know, and really the church should be a place. The body of Christ, you know, should be a place where, where the wounded and the beat up of this world can come and feel care, and feel concern, and feel compassion, right? They should be able to experience that in the church. And then the last thing he uses there is humble. Other translations might say humble-minded, but this is really a shocking thing for Peter to write at the time, because at the time in the Greco-Roman era, um, this concept of humble-mindedness was considered a weakness, it was not a virtue by any sense of the word. The concept of the uh, Greco-Roman era was that when we went in and conquered people, we forced them into being humble-minded people. We forced them into being slaves, we for, right? So, so the concept of being humble-minded was something that was, that, was, that was radically negative in the culture. The culture of the day was, was big on self-confidence, self-esteem, self-assertiveness. Hmm, sounds familiar. But Peter's going, no, no, no. That's not the attitude you're supposed to live in. Be humble. Be humble-minded. And really because humility is, is, is the grease that, that keeps the gears of relationship running healthy. Right? When you're able to, to step back and go, oh, uh, maybe, maybe I'm not going to assert my will here and, and insist on me being right and force my way, but I'm going to be humble. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I saw it differently. Maybe, you know, that humility is what allows us to, to cooperate together. And so these five things are what I believe form a, a really beautiful description of the general attitude of believers, of Christians, but especially towards other believers. And as I said earlier, to sum it up, it's just Love them. Love them. This is the attitude that, that, that Christian believers are to, to, to live in and to operate in. Just, just love your family. Treat them well. Treat them good, you know? Next, he addresses the, the second thing, the second sweet thing that I think when the world sees it can be a catalyst to draw them to the Lord is, is our gentle response to those who are difficult. So verse 9, he goes on to say, Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. Since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. So I'm going to let you guys in on a secret. Just because someone is saved doesn't mean they are always pleasant. (gasps) Right? Shocking. (laughs) Just because someone is saved doesn't mean they are always pleasant. And, 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 you know, as believers, generally and specifically to one another, we're called to, to be everything that, that verse 8 said, right? To be like-minded, to love, to be sympathetic, all of these things. But, but sometimes um, we, ourselves, or someone we're engaging with, you know, might be in a season where, where they aren't those things in verse 8, they aren't behaving that way, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. And the reason I believe that that he is he is highlighting Christians. He is talking about Christians to Christians here is because in verse 8, he goes, Finally, all of you, right? He's talking to the, the readers of this letter. And then he says, like-minded, right? Have a have a unified mindset. And then he says, loving one another, right? He's talking to the believing church. And so then when he goes on here, not paying back evil for evil, it, it can apply to, to people outside of the church, you know, treating you badly, but but I think contextually he's saying, look, sometimes we treat each other evil. Sometimes we insult one another. And so this, this the evil, the insult spoken here, I, I really do believe primarily it's it's the context of a believer to another believer, right? And so really what he's getting at here is what is our response to antagonistic families? right? What is our response to, to our Christian brother or sister who might be who knows why having a really, really bad season, right? He basically says, don't hit back. Don't yell back. Don't hurt back. Instead, bless them in response. That's really wild, right? I mean, it's biblical. Luke chapter 6, verse 28 it says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. It doesn't say there, I'm only talking about believers or unbelievers, it's a general statement. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12. It says, when we are reviled, that word reviled means to be insulted, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. And that's quite the opposite of typically how we want to respond when someone is being unkind, mean, insulting towards us, right? But he says when someone's doing that, bless them. That word bless them means to ask God to bestow special favor or gracious power on their life. <laughs> you just cussed me out or took advantage of me or hurt me, and, 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 and I'm supposed to say, God, bestow special favor into their life, right? And then sometimes even when we pray that prayer, we're like, can the special favor be in the form of a lightning bolt maybe? No. When your brother and sister in Christ is, is having a bad day, Maybe they're going through a season of their life of just great difficulty, and they're struggling, right? And they're cranky and upset. Maybe your saved Christian brother and sister is in a season where they're just backslidden. And they're just, just not being obedient to the Lord, and they're, and they're just, just all twisted up because of it. And they lash out at you, and they do evil to you, and they insult you. He says, pray pray that your God and their God, because they are God's child, would bless them, would shine his favor on them, not strike them down with furious vengeance. And really, this is a hallmark of Christian faith. I mean, this is one of the the things that makes Christianity um, different than all the other faith belief systems out there. It really sets Christianity apart. You know, if you were to look up Specifically, and say, okay, what's different between Christianity and all the other belief systems? Um, one of the main ones is that Christianity, we are called to love our enemies. To love our enemies. No other belief system out there teaches that. That is a unique thing to the Christian faith. We are called to love our enemies. And at the time, that very concept was something that was absolutely unheard of to love your enemies. I mean, even if you go back into the Jewish culture and you look into the Jewish culture of the Old Testament, they had um, what was known as lex, tali- <coughs> sorry, lex talionis. This was in the Jewish culture. Lex talionis. It was, a, it was basically the idea that the punishment must fit the crime. Right? And so you get the concepts of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a, and a hand for a hand and, and so on and so on, Right? And it's funny because that concept was actually was actually given to them to limit vengeance. (laughs) It wasn't saying this is how far you could go in vengeance. The problem was is human nature wanted to go well beyond that. And it was like, no, 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 no. You know, someone takes your eye, you can't go back and say, I'm gonna take both of yours. Someone caused you to, to lose a hand and you're like, oh, I'm gonna take both your feet, right? It was, it was to limit the, the vengeance that was just a part of, of, of human nature and it's, it's human nature to strike back. It's human nature to, to, to hit back and, and in most instances, when we operate in that human nature and strike back, we don't strike back even for even. We strike back to hurt you a little bit more than you hurt me. And this is how arguments get out of control, Right? Somebody says something, oh my gosh, that hurt. And so you say something that little more stinging and biting. And they're like, oh, and then they say something back, a little more stinging and biting, right? And it just cycles out of control. He says, no, don't do that. Instead, ask God to grant them special grace and favor. God bless them. Bless their life. And and that's incredibly difficult to do. It's incredibly difficult to do. I would say on our own, it's impossible to do. Right? I mean, we all experience it. We have our moments, you know. You're on the road and someone cuts you off and does something, you know, bad and almost causes an accident and your first reaction isn't like, oh, God bless their life. It's like, God, can you like, take away their driver's license and ground them so they can never drive again because they're idiots, right? I mean, we just, we just go all into it, you know? And I have my areas of my life where, where my first reaction is not, bless them. Especially when it's family, right? When it's people you love and your family in Christ and people maybe you've served and ministered to and they backbite you or stab you in the back and hurt you and you're just like, <laughs> you know, God strike them down. That's what you want to pray. And he says, no. And I believe why, and I've experienced in my life, that when, when you intentionally pray for those that have wronged you, especially your, your, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know, they, they've hurt you, they've insulted you, they've done evil to you, something, and you go, you know what, God, just, just, Lord, they are your kid. And I don't know what they're going through, and maybe I do know what they're going through, and, and maybe it's justified, maybe it's completely unjustified, but God, I want to do what your word is saying. And so, so Lord, just bless them. They're, they're your kid. Fix it. Do what you do. We find that our hearts will change towards them. I've found that to be the case that your heart softens, the hurt, the anger just melts away. And he says at the end of it, he goes, since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. You know, you're blessed when you bless. We are blessed when we bless. When we go against our sinful nature, instead of giving into it and doing what might feel natural, what the world says to do, When we go against that and we bless, when we turn the other cheek, when we go the extra mile, when we bless when we're insulted, man, I mean, we are just opening ourselves to great blessing here today on this earth and then in blessing in heaven tomorrow. It's a biblical truth. In Matthew chapter five, verse 11, it says this, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Proverbs has this one uh, uh, verse and it's kind of debated by, by scholars and people way smarter than I am on stuff, but, but it, it talks about you know, being kind and serving your enemies and in doing so you will heap hot coals upon their head. Right? I don't know if you've ever experienced that the person who's being nasty and hurtful and hateful towards you and you just respond in kindness and everything, it, just, it like sometimes makes them more mad, right? But I've also seen that situation where they get so mad and they're so confused and they're so just taken aback by the thing that it is the very thing that led them. But how can you be that way? Well, it's Jesus, that's why. So, so far we catch flies by our general attitude of love, our general response of blessing and the third and final point is by our genuine motivation. Look in verse 10. He goes, For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. So, Why? Why are we we, we to do the things that God's commanding us here? You know, what's the motivation, right? In verse 8, he says, do this. Verse 9, don't do this. Verses 10 through 12, because, right? He goes for, and then he gets into the verses, right? Peter's quoting from Psalm 34 here. And really the, the, the underlying concept of this is, is why do we do the things God's commanding? Well, I believe what Peter's reinforcing here is we do what God commands us to do because he says so. And that's enough. Sometimes we don't feel like it's enough, but it is enough, right? Peter says, look, I'm writing this to you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do this, don't do this. Why? Let me quote Psalm 34. Let me quote scripture to you, right? God said so. God said so. But that just, you know, reinforces an idea that, you know, if you're a student of the Word, read the whole Word. You know, go start in Genesis 1 and go all the way to Revelation, you know, because it's really the whole Bible. It really takes the whole Bible to make a whole believer. And, and so don't just cherry-pick, you know, stuff, you know, just read the whole Bible. and It might take you a long time, but read the whole thing. Because God speaks in all of it to our lives, but what, what Peter quotes here from Psalm 34, he says, for the one who wants to love life and to see good days. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I'm like, I want to love life. I want good days. Do you guys want to love life? Do you want good days? Right? Loving life there, it means just the, 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 the simple joy of being alive, being able to live another day and take another breath and, and, and to just experience whatever God has for you that day. And then that phrase, good days there, it just simply means days that are full of positive qualities. We all want good days. And he's asking that question, look, the one who wants this, and I believe the reader, the, the reason Peter is quoting this, he goes on to explain some of that, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to deceit, right? It's just speaking of what Peter just said in verses 8 and verses 9 here. Love people. You wanna love life? You wanna have good days? Love people. Love them. Both the good people and the bad people. Some people just hate life. And I don't know if you've ever engaged with people that just hate life and they're miserable. And it's just really a drag trying trying to interact with people that hate life. King Solomon who had every reason to love life because he had so much, he had everything, said this in Ecclesiastes 2.17. Therefore, I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for everything is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Yeah, if your life is full of selfish pursuit, selfish living, selfish gain, you will always be disappointed, you will always be frustrated, you will always be empty. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's a life that is focused on him and dedicated to him and seeking him. It doesn't mean we're not gonna have difficulties around us, but in the midst of those difficulties, we're gonna have peace and we're gonna have joy. Not only do some hate life, but some just endure it, right? You ever talk to that person? They just seem to be like enduring life. Hey, how you doing today? Oh, I'm okay. Okay just making it through one more day. And we all have those seasons. I'm not saying we can never have rough times, right? But if, that's your, if you're a Christian and that's your attitude for, for weeks, months, years, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I believe enjoying life comes when we realize in the face of everything, good and bad, when we realize that there is a sovereign God who loves us, who exists outside of time, who knows all things, past, present, and future, and, 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 and as a believer, he's in charge of my life. I've, I've yielded my life to him. When we realize that he allows the good and the difficult people that come into our lives, and he allows them to be there for a purpose, there is a reason why there's this difficult individual there's a reason why these people are here that are easy to, to love. There's a reason for all of that. that that's, that's one of the motivations. Say, God, I believe you're in charge. I believe you're, you're, you're allowing all of this. And so, so I'm, I'm not surprised. But help me to be who you're calling me to be. Help me to, to, to behave how you're calling me to behave. So, God, because I believe you're sovereign, because I believe you've allowed this to happen, because I trust you, God, I'm I'm, going to treat them with blessing, not cursing. I'm going to keep my tongue from evil, as he says here. I'm going to keep my lips from speaking deceit, right? I'm not going to insult them. I'm not going to be the one who does those things. I'm going to turn away from evil and do what is good. I'm going to seek peace. And pursue peace, not, not keep the argument going, not keep the fight going, not keep pouring fire on it, but, but, but seek peace, even if it's awkward. And the second motivation, I think, is in the second part of what he quotes there. He goes, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do, who do what is evil. You see, God is watching over us. His kids, he's watching over us with with care. He's, 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 He's endeavoring to take care of us. Sadly for a lot of us, he doesn't violate our free will to do that, right? We still make stupid decisions and find ourselves suffering the consequences of our own stupidity. But God even works in and through that to teach us and to mold us and to shape us. But God is watching over his kids. He's he's working to protect us, and he's paying attention to us, and he's listening to us when we pray. It's interesting because he just got done talking to the husbands and said, look, treat your wives right so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then here he's going, look, body in general, the Lord's eyes are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Wow. Those who do what is evil? The Lord's face is against them. You know what that tells me? I don't have to worry about the people who do evil to me. I don't have to worry about the people who wrong me and insult me. God sees what they do. God is aware. And God is the one who's going to sort it all out in his time according to his will and his way. The Bible says that God said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I trust that. I trust that. So when someone wrongs me, I don't have to be like, oh, no, I have to get them back or they're going to get away with it. They might live this whole life never getting the justice that they deserve, but one day they will stand before God Almighty. And especially if it's your family member that's wronged you. It's like, oh, i got to get them back. Are you kidding me? That's not how family treats family. And we do it because the Bible says to do it. That's obedience. That's submission. That's yielding. I do it because I know God is watching over me. I know his intent is to take good care of me, and I know he will deal with those who have done evil towards me. I know it. And so in the process, and when evil is done towards me and insulting is done towards me, from the world spe- especially, but, but when it happens for my own family, bless them. Pray that God blesses them. Bless those who insult you. Bless those who do evil towards you. And really, I think the reason he's calling us to do that is because God blessed us when we were doing evil to him. It says in Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just a few verses later in Romans 5, 10, it says God reconciled us to him while we were still his enemies. Think about that next time someone wrongs you and you're like, oh, I need to get them back and I need to pray cursing on them and especially if it's your family member in Christ, oh, you know what? They need to be dealt with. God deals with his own kids. You can trust that. Rest in that. He disciplines his children. We've all experienced it. We get out of line. God has a way to discipline us. You know that person that you think, they're getting out of line. God's going to deal with them. You don't have to be the one. That, oh no. God says, no, no, no. You, you, you bless them when they're doing evil to you. You bless them when they're insulting you. Why? Because when you were my enemy, when you hated me, when you blasphemed me, guess what I did for you? I came to this earth and died on the cross for your sins. Every single one of them. So that you could be saved, so you could have forgiveness, so you could have salvation, so you could be transformed from the inside out. I did that for you when you hated my guts. Romans 2, 4 says God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. And it has, right, for so many of us. When we come to realize that, that we've broken his law, we're guilty of judgment. And then we hear the message that God so loved the world, he so loved you, that he gave his only begotten son so that if you would believe on him, you would not die, you would not perish, but you would have everlasting life. And we say, he did that for me, I don't deserve that. I didn't earn that. I don't don't deserve that blessing. And then God always tells us that's the point. You don't deserve it, I'm doing it for you because I love you and he calls us to do the same for one another. It's the sweetness of honey. the sweetness of love, the sweetness of kindness that drew us, knowing that there was a debt paid for us that, that we could never pay. You know, as a church, we're not the company of the faultless. We are the company of the forgiven. And that is demonstrated and proven by the fact that as a church, we, we, we were to open our doors, open our lives to the unlovey, unlovely, the hurting, the difficult, we demonstrate that, that, that we are a forgiven people and we get that when, when we refuse to pay back evil and insults with evil and insults. Instead, we pay it back with blessing. When we are united by our like mindedness in what we believe and why. When we are sympathetic and loving and compassionate and humble towards one another, even when we're treated poorly. All of that serves to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to proclaim that truth to a lost and dying world. And when we demonstrate the love of Jesus, especially to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, it demonstrates, it proclaims, it shows the sweetness that is Jesus. Because we, by nature, are not sweet. I don't care what your mom or your grandma tells you. You're so sweet. We're not, we're not. We get upset, we lose our temper, whether it's in our cars or in line at a store, listening to a conversation or whatever, right? Something is said, something is done, and something inside of us just wells up and we want to fight back. But as we submit our lives, as we yield our lives to the Holy Spirit, as we let God change us from the inside out and do what He's calling us to do and live in obedience, Stop trying to justify our sins. Stop trying to, to explain why my sin is okay, but simply acknowledge that I've sinned against God. I deserve penalty. I deserve all of it, but God, please save me. Please forgive me. Come into my life and be my master. When we do that, we find that the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is the thing that very transforms us to make us Christ-like towards one another, and when we are Christ-like towards one another, we are blessed because of it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And uh, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would work in, in every single believer in this room, God. Lord, we are saved because of what you did on the cross. You died in our place. You granted us salvation. Not because we earned it. Not because we deserve it but because you're a great love for us. Lord, you poured out blessing into our lives when we hated you. You poured out blessing. Lord, the ultimate blessing of salvation. You did that work for us, Lord, especially today before we were even alive. And then God, so many of us lived lives of blasphemy and lives of sin and lives of destruction. And yet, Lord, you patiently lovingly just kept reaching out to us. Brought people across our paths. Brought tracks and literature across our paths. Had people we know, God, that that, that committed their lives to you come and share with us, Lord. Invitations to church, all of this stuff, Lord, because you wanted us to know the sweetness of your love and kindness. And Lord, you call us to treat each other in the church with that same sweetness, God. Knowing that as the world sees your people behave the way you lived. When the world sees your people, obey you, God, even when it's difficult, even when it's with difficult people. Lord, when the world sees that, it proclaims that radical change that you wrought into the lives of those who commit their, themselves to you. And so, Lord, help us, God. We can't do it by ourselves, Lord. I ask for every believer in this room, Lord, that you just fill us with your Holy Spirit, God. We know we're sealed, Lord, but sometimes we just, we just need that help, Lord. And God, it's not that we're lacking you in our lives, we're just simply not tapping into what we already have, God. And so, Lord, help us to to pray and to reach out to you and to depend on you to be the people you're calling us to be, that our witness would be secure, that our witness would be bold, that our witness would be sound, and that the people we know in our lives that simply do not know you as our Lord and Savior would come to know you, that they would come to salvation through the witness of our conduct. Lord, we are family bound by the blood of Jesus, Lord. Help us to act like it. Help us to live like it. And God, when every single one of us has a bad time, a bad day, a bad moment, and our conduct is simply just not flattering to to, to you, it is not glorifying your name at all, and we're just being an unkind jerk, Lord, that our brothers and sisters around us would have the mind, to pray for us and to pray pray blessing into our lives, God, because we need it. Lord, we thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. We commit ourselves to you in every way, Lord. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship.